Welcome to Behind the Splinters, a limited series interview podcast about the making of 12 monkeys. This is Brandy, or Beep, as I'm more commonly referred to on the interwebs. I live in the Atlanta area and happen to be a fan of brilliantly written genre shows. So I think that explains my presence here, because 12 Monkeys certainly fits that description. I am joined, as always, by the lovely Cece. Hi there. I'm Tina. I'm a recovering lawyer in Washington, D.C., and this is how I channel my frustrations as a former English major. I'm a huge fan of both genre TV and film, as well as period pieces, and so a time travel show is basically my ultimate happy place. (laughs) If you are also a giant 12 Monkeys fan, you may recognize our voices from the Rewatch podcast, Word of the Witnesses where we brought in several of our fellow fangirls and broke down every episode of the series and how they all connect. That podcast also includes several interviews with the writers, cast, and other behind-the-scenes folks. So you can find Word of the Witnesses on all major podcast platforms. And we'd also love for you to engage with us on Twitter at 12MRewatchPod. For this podcast, we want to tell the behind-the-scenes story of the making of one of TV's great science fiction shows. And so we will be talking to many different creative departments such as costumes, set design, writers, and directors, so that we can highlight their incredible work and fans can better understand the process of making a television show. We couldn't tell the -the behind-the-scenes story without the support of the very generous people behind this show. And in particular, we want to thank co-creator and showrunner Terry Metalis for his support of this project. First up, a conversation with Terry Metalis and Travis Fickett, co-creators of Sci-Fi's 12 Monkeys, about writing and developing the pilot. Please enjoy now as we go Behind the Splinters. All right. So today we have with us co-creators of 12 Monkeys, the television series, Terry Metalis and Travis Fickett. Thank you guys so much for being here with us. We appreciate you guys a lot. Thanks for doing it. You're welcome. So we understand, and I know a lot of listeners, watchers may not know this, but that you guys were actually college roommates. Mm-hmm. That's yes. right. Yes, okay. we were. So what, like, did you guys used to dream about making TV that you would, you know, in your dorm room or like what shows or movies that were, you know, were super formative to your process? Oh, boy. Um, yes. Uh, Trav, do you, do you want to start? What do you want to do? Oh, formative? I mean, I remember stuff that we saw together in college that changed us. Pulp Fiction yeah. was one. Yeah, Pulp Seven Fiction was, was another. Many times. The Prophecy, Christopher Walken's mo- movie, The Prophecy, we saw. Do we see, even see I, it more than once? I don't even, I don't know. If I, don't, I think we might have, but Seven, I remember Seven wrecked Terry. Yeah. Um, uh, it did. Still does. Especially at the end, we're in the theater and the credits started going backwards and Terry just goes, why? <laughs> uh, yeah. It was just such a messed up experience uh what else legends of the fall <laughs> <laughs> in a hate way yeah um, um I, I mean we we used to go we you know we he travis was was a year older than me i was a freshman who got thrown into a dorm room with um a couple of sophomores and um we had like it we weren't even supposed to be roommates it was like a glitch or something so you guys graduate from college, and you both move out to L.A.? Uh, yeah. Well, Emerson has a, I think they still have it, a, a program where, you know, Emerson's in Boston, as far removed from the industries you can get. But they have a program where the last semester, 
you come to Los Angeles and you live in Burbank and you get an internship and you get real industry experience and do all of that kind of stuff. So I did that. And then the following year, Terry did the same thing and we both ended up staying. And so how did you all start writing as a duo? And, and how does that actually work <laughs> when two people are writing together? Um, we actually started together fairly early. We, we wrote together a little bit in college and then we wrote together a little bit once Terry came out to LA. Um, and then that was sort of a, a fits and starts attempt. I think it was around 2007 that we started writing Maxwell House, which was just for fun because I was working uh, in a post-production house and Terry was working uh, as an assistant at Star Trek. And we were both going crazy. So we started, I think, I think, I, did I send you the first sentence? I don't know. I, I, it was just an idea. It was, a, it was a writing exercise where we were going to just write something and have no idea what the other person wrote it and had to respond and then just keep writing as if it was a novel. And I think, I, I don't know, it might have been me because it sounds like something dumb I would do. Like I said, like, like Maxwell House, like holstered his gun and blah, blah. Like it was supposed to be like something so dumb that it took the pressure off of like, it'd be like, it's okay. Like there's no pressure to writing this um, uh, at all. So you can just, you can have fun with it. So you just felt different about your writing. Um, and uh, it evolved into a time travel story um, with elements we start we you know not all of it but a lot some of it we wanted to use for Splinter. Well, not so much so that that's the origin of the character uh, Max's name. Yeah, in in the first draft of the Twelve wow. Monkey script, his name was Max. Um, not House though, because that would have been ridiculous. Uh, we just I don't think he ever I don't think he had a last name. I think. He said, no. my name is Max. And she's like, Max, Max who? And she's like, he's like, it's just Max. But that was also in a pilot where like he was coming from like 200 years in the future. Um, in the, in the first splinter, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it was, wasn't so close to when the world died. Right. It wasn't and he was a little, little bit, he was a little bit more of a super. Yeah. He had like nanobites that did shit and things. I, don't know, I wouldn't call him a superhero. But, but he had powers. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so this is just this ridiculous story. And we started sharing it with friends because it actually was really cool. And then they were like, can you get us the next chapter? And it was like this thing that we would just send only to our friends. And then, like, per tra tradition at that point in our, our writing partnership, we never finished it. Um, <laughs> so we um, – so th then the next step towards 12 Monkeys – was we we wanted we if we wanted to break in i was already working in the industry um as an assistant and travis was working in in development and film acquisition that if we wanted to break in we knew we needed a, a spec script a spec pilot something and so we wanted to write a show called spearhead and what it was about was um the government facility um, prior to a disaster in which all of the heads of state and um, VIPs, key, key scientists, key scientists would be sheltered in case of an apocalypse of some kind. And, and um, the teaser of it was this amazing sort of montage of 
people from all walks of life being grabbed by uh, government officials to be helicoptered in before. And, and you never knew exactly like they got in and the doors closed and something happened and you never knew exactly what happened outside. Um, which is still a cool pilot as I pitch this. I'm like, hey, we should do this. Yeah. Because one yeah, of the I ideas, love this story. <laughs> I'd like to watch that. <laughs> one, one of the ideas was that um, you, there was a sort of ongoing mystery of, can we open the doors to look outside, to go outside? And it's like, we don't know how deadly it is. We don't or know what it what is happened. or why, right. who ordered it. Or, uh, and, um, but the idea was that it was, you know, it was an outdated program that hadn't been updated. In fact, they went to like go grab a doctor um, at her at uh, at at like somebody at the doctor's house who's important. And then they knock on the door and they're like, "Are you Doctor Sorensen or whatever?" And he's like, "Yes, I am." They're like, please come with me. And they usher him into the helicopter. It takes off, and then the camera just stays in his doorway as you sort of uh, dolly back to see a dead body there, and you realize. The, that was that guy. was the real doctor is dead and they've got somebody else they have a serial killer um man that was a cool idea and so what happened was we uh it was it was one of these amazing premise pilots right where and they still happen i still see them all the time where in fact i just watched a series of amazing premise pilot and then it just fell apart where it was like but well, what's the show and we couldn't crack it because you're like well you know you know you have the character stories inside and possibly starting up a government again, which felt a little familiar to Battlestar Galactica. But then it was like, I don't know, like something really well, it, cool it, has to be happening out there. Well, I remember it being like the winning, any kind of solution was so far off in the future of these characters that it just lacked any kind of drive or urgency. A little bit like Walking Dead when you're, when you're like, what are they doing? Yeah, like, what that's are they my problem. Really doing? Yeah. Exactly. Like they're just, What's the they're just surviving here? day to day. That's right. it. So we're like, like all of us. So, so we're like, <laughs> how can how can it become more urgent to to solve this problem? And then um, it became well, we have to stop it from ever happening in the first place. Right. It became a time travel story. Um, wow. And so that was that that was the idea. I think it was Travis. Like maybe it's a time travel story. And I, I mean, it was like. That, that's my, in my DNA as, you know, so uh, one day I just started, I, I, for, you know, we would get pulled away from our jobs because we were both working quite a bit. And I just wrote like 10 pages. I was just like, I didn't even know where it was going. And it was basically the whole opening with, uh, you know, at that time it was Max and his friend who became Ramsey walking in the apocalypse instead of just um scavs they were actual like it was more like the last of us where yeah, mutant horrifying yeah that the, with, the inf- with milky milky eyes remember milky white eyes and 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 fucked up skin and so that was more like <clears throat> the infected were a threat in the future um but they were still the, the it was it was the opening going through the cdc um and finding cassie her name is cassie because I just always liked the name and I knew like, you could do a cool Cassandra thing because where the story was going to go. Uh, and it was the watch and um, leading to her at the hospital. She gets abducted in the car um, at that time, brought back to like this dingy apartment. Um, and Max does the watch paradoxy thing. 
there or not paradoxing where he like he cuts the watch and there was like a um like a countdown like he knew he was going to splinter and he was like out of time was like super desperate first act or like he needed to get this information about uh at the time it wasn't leland frost it was um mason frost yeah right and It's such a, such, such a TV name. Uh, and leading to the whole first act where just the, he gets shot by the cops and he splinters away. Like all that was just, and I handed it to Travis. So I was like, now let's go. <laughs> and, um, and so we just kept writing it and, you know, chunk at a time, chunk at a time, ultimately to, uh, to the point where we got them to where they were caught by Mason Frost and, I remember that's what we, like, we were stuck and we were stuck there for like a month. Like we didn't, we didn't know what happened or what the way out of it was. And it was Travis who came up with the watch paradox thing. Um, and um, which is a little bit like, uh, what's that terrible movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme time cop? Yeah. There's like some rules no. in time cop time cop. Wait a minute. Yeah, but it's not terrible. <laughs> I don't remember it. I don't remember it. What a horrible thing to say. Is it bad? Is it good? It's Peter Hyams, right? I mean, yeah. I do, I do like the Peter Hyams. Um, anyway, <laughs> so and that got it out, and we had we had the script. And go ahead, take it away, Trev. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't. I mean, yeah, I think we were writing because um, we had a, a few spec scripts that we ended up writing. So we may have been writing other things at the time and going back and forth. Do you remember? Like, I, I, mean, I don't remember. Yeah, we were. We, uh, I, I mean, we didn't finish anything. I, I remember, like, at one point, I had, remember I, like, came down to Sherman Oaks and I, like, sat you down. I'm like, we need to finish this script. I don't know why, but I yeah, really yeah. feel like, I really feel like we have to finish it. But we never intended to sell it. That was the other thing that, that's so kind of interesting about it. Like, in fact, when we cleaned it up and it got into the hands of our manager, uh, the who ended up, this gentleman who ended up becoming our manager, he was like, so what do you want to do? You want to sell it? And Travis and I looked at each other like, we, we, you can do that? Can. <laughs> yeah, we were thinking it was a staffing sample, which it, it ended up becoming for us at the, uh, in the same you know capacity as being sold. But um, that was the goal was like, let's just prove that we can write and then see what happens. And then the rest uh, was this, this weird synergy like thing where <laughs> – that it, it was everybody really responded to the script uh to splinter and um it ended up our manager got it into the hands of um keith goldberg who runs dark horse everything dark horse right now on television like uh umbrella academy um which ironically shoots on the 12 monkey sound stages and anyway so and keith goldberg had just left atlas which had the rights to 12 monkeys and he was like, you know, this really feels like 12 Monkeys. You should let Atlas read it. And we're like, sure, whatever. So then we had this meeting with uh, Chuck Roven, who's, you know, juggernaut, iconic film producer who had who made the movie 12 Monkeys. And Richard Suckle, who also made it, also juggernaut producer. And we were, they said, you know, this is really great. Could you turn this into 12 Monkeys? And we were like, sure. I mean, yeah. And then... But we were so green in that meeting that we <clears throat> we didn't even have agents yet. We were just like it was our first meeting, professional meeting as writers, having only gotten ourselves just gotten ourselves a manager. So we're <laughs> like so 
just terrified sitting in this meeting and thinking, oh man, <clears throat> like these guys are want what? They want to they want to turn this into 12 monkeys? And I remember thinking, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. You're dumb. When um, why, but why is that? Because I you know, we went back and watched some of your like interviews back in season one and you all had said that your instinct was don't do it and is that because it was i I wanted to unpack that about well we wouldn't you you couldn't 12 monkeys is is like the movie is a perfect sort of puzzle box right so um i mean we say don't do it but the opportunity to turn that to turn splinter into an actual sellable ip was obviously too too good to be true. So we, we like, we, we, we needed like that had to happen. Um, but it couldn't be the same aesthetic, right? Like I remember even sitting with Chuck Rove and he's like, I don't think it could be a Gillian movie every week. Like there's an exhaustion to everything that's amazing about Terry Gilliam. Could you do 50 hours of that over the, I mean, maybe someone can, Someone could do it, but we were like, no, let, we wanted to lean into, and th- they originally had envisioned the movie as more of a um, thriller, a thriller adventure. Um, and so we were like, we think we could probably do that better than trying to crib Terry Gilliam. Um, but for me, like, I remember thinking right in the meeting, I was like, oh, I know how you do that. You, like, Max comes back, but he doesn't know. He comes back, but um looking for mason frost but what mason frost will tell him is like you're not looking for me you're looking for the army of the 12 monkeys and 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 i remember uh, and i pulled this from when i first saw the trailer and the movie 12 monkeys when i was a kid which was basically i i thought there was something so mysterious and weird about the name of the army of the 12 monkeys and then almost disappointed that they weren't this cool secret cabal um, that they were, they ended up being this other thing, which is, you know, obviously I don't feel that way now when you look at it, it's perfect. Um, but I was like, well, what if they really are like the threat? And that was kind of it. And so the next part of it was, uh, and Travis can speak more to this, uh, which was we, so we, we had, we did, we adopt, we had uh, adapted it and turned it in to, to 12 monkeys. And then we went out. And everybody loved the script, and nobody wanted to make it. And this, this, in the Sci-Fi Channel passed on it three times, like three times. We were in there before they said yes, and there was a um, a new exec who came in, um, Paul Shapiro, who was like, "You guys, finally, it was like, you guys, we really should be doing this. Like, we want to go back to our Battlestar roots. This is, this is that." But it was like three, four years to the point in which I didn't want to take another phone call about 12 monkeys anymore because it, we had been on so many meetings and we got very close, like BBC America wanted them to do it. Um, and universal was like, no, that's our property. Well, that, we're we're going to do it. That's, we're gonna, yeah. That's what made it, I think enticing to universal universal. Yeah. Is that some, somebody else wanted it and they were like, what? No, wait, we, we, we've been saying no, but now somebody else wants it and it's our toy. We, we want to play with that. And it, I think made it a viable property in their eyes, which it hadn't been prior to that. Also from the beginning, when we were pitching it, we started, we had no experience. We were unknown quantity and people thought like who, you know, these people. And we ended up 
you know, working uh, in between the first time we took 12 Monkeys out to when we, you know, four, four years later, when we were still sh- shopping it around, but we had worked on Terra Nova, we'd worked on Nikita, we'd, you know, we had experience and people now knew us. Um, so I think it just meant that we were more viable as well. And it was just that confluence of events that led it to, you know, you, you, you're always just pushing that meter in between yes and no. And you just got to get it over that (laughs) into that red zone where someone will actually go, I've run out of reasons to say no. So why don't we do this? So that moment that, so what is it? The third or fourth time when sci-fi finally says, let's do it. Um, you all had written on other TV shows, and I know that you had um, folks as sort of official showrunner and helping you, but all of a sudden you're now taking this from, you know, a pilot that you had been writing to explain to us like what happens next, producing a pilot. Um, it went pretty quickly from the time that they bought it. We they They bought it and we had to rewrite a little bit um from from we, that we took the zombies out <clears throat> we did that sucked um mm-hmm. i remember that being kind of a letdown we, but at that time it was literally at the peak of walking dead um right and, and we wanted to make them different enough but like it, it seemed it would have been really interesting to have um, imagine in 2043 that there's another threat out there that's just not scavs that's not a bunch of just homeless people <laughs> that attack houses. You know what I mean? Like it was there. There was a, a real scary element that that was a constant visual reminder of of it. It's not just saving seven billion. It's saving you know the few remaining people that are, are that are being hunted into extinction here. You know, there was it, it's, it's a cool idea. Maybe for our next one. Well, it was it was also just a visual um, sort of representation of what the virus could do it just as, as long as it was more horrific and and everything it just gave cole that that much more drive but i think it also would have been one idea too many ultimately yeah totally definitely yeah so um we had to write finish writing the last season of um nikita nikita and what's funny is that nikita was on the bubble of, of getting picked up or not. And it ended up only getting picked up for six episodes. Now, if it had been picked up for the full 22, um, that would have conflicted with us being able to make 12 monkeys. I don't know if we would have had to have walked away. We would have had to have walked away. We would have. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I guess not. Um, I don't know if contractually that would have been a mess, but it ended up working out perfectly because we did the six episodes and then walked right into essentially the ca- the development process of you know casting and all of that for Twelve Monkeys and yeah. writing the Bible. So yeah. with with respect to casting, um, you have you know it's interesting because you you're writing Splinter <clears throat> and you had sort of I assume an idea of who these characters were. You then adapt it you know, turn it into 12 monkeys. Can you all walk us through the, what you had in your head when you imagined Cole or Cassie or Jones and then how, and how how that might've shifted or changed as you went through the casting process? It was, it was really hard to cast this show. So in the eyes of, I think some of the producers, we were the kids 
right? Uh, I think a lot of people were coming from features and they're like, don't worry, we got this. We know how to cast the thing. But it was also, there was a lot of shows going. Um, we weren't seeing as many people as we needed to see and we had to do it fast. Like it was, the, the show was picked up cast contingent, meaning we are going to say we want to do this, but we want to see your Cole and Cassie first and we need to love them. Um, and if we don't, then we, we have the right to say we don't want to make this. So the pressure was on and we saw, you know, we saw a lot of people. I mean, we met with, um, you know, people who would go on to be wearing Mandalorian armor and anything from, from, from all over the place. But it was, we, I think we all had a kind of a different version of what Cole could be. Um, and including Travis and I, at one point we, we actually went down the road casting somebody who um, wasn't right for me, but was right for a lot of other people. Um, it was really hard. Like it, it was hard for me to, um, and, and and that led to a Cassie too that I wasn't a hundred percent sure about. Like I, we took it hard. And Travis got you know like Travis was one he liked this other choice, and there's nothing nothing wrong. It's just a different. It would have just been a different show. Um, there's nothing wrong with well, liking it. But that's the the key element of of casting is you're not just looking for someone that's going to you you start off thinking okay I'm going to find somebody that can play this role and the then the project will remain the script that we wrote but the truth is once you put somebody in that role everything forms around that person the show becomes different it becomes the show starring this person right and there's a and, tone that changes like it, if, a certain, if you hire, you know, it, if you're going to hire, um, what, uh, what's it, who plays Bane? What's that? What's that guy? Uh, Tom, Tom Hardy, Hardy, right? Okay. So you, if you hire Tom Hardy to play your main, no one will hear the whole show. They right. Okay. But, thing. but that's one, that's one show, right? <laughs> if you hire Keanu Reeves, that's a totally different thing, right? If you hire, you know, so it's, uh, just even the same words, but a different person changes the tone. And I didn't like the tone. That we were in, we had, we ended up go. I mean, when I mean going down the road, like we we cast a, a whole other Cole and Cassie, um, and I was, I mean, I was, I the biggest. I think Travis. I think back on our biggest fights. I like I think back on this moment. Like like I was horrible. I was horrible to Travis because he was supporting this idea, and it wasn't like. It was, he just felt like he felt right. There was no reason to be, but like I really felt that it was wrong um and travis is like you're being a monster we're getting our pilot made with and there these were good actors these were not bad actors that's another thing i want to say like like they're they're it was just different um and then ultimately what happened is it all fell apart anyway the deal it was a crazy deal with this actor who had a bunch of demands um and ultimately the network was like no and so now we were in real trouble. Do you remember that, Trav? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. They weren't diva demands. They were personal life-changing moment demands that this guy wanted to do a certain thing. And the the network and the studio were just like, nope. And they were like, everybody kind of thought he was going to bend because, of course, he wanted – they wanted to make a tv show and and then the actor was like nah i'm good see you later 
Yeah. It was and, kind of shocking. And then we thought that was it. We thought our pilot was dead. And so so they were like, you have you have one week to cast your show. And Amanda was somebody, like, for me, I always saw Amanda. Like, it's, Amanda's kind of what I saw in my head when I start, first wrote Cassie in Splinter, which was the all-American girl next door doctor just you know she just had that like um put together um erudite quality that you could then rough up over the course of five years of a story and turn her into you know a scav um and so amanda was kind of already on and had already um tested with the network a bunch of times and was 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 on so we we knew she was a likely candidate but cole was was, we didn't know now Aaron Stanford, who we worked with on Nikita, um, had read for Ramsey when this other actor worked. And we loved the read. Uh, and at the time, our director didn't didn't watch the audition. And so um, we went back. We were driving. We were like, what about Aaron? Like, it's a non-traditional. Remember, we were on the 405. I remember we were on the 405. It's like, we should, we should, we should get Aaron in here. And we reached and out. Aaron- and well, yeah. the, the 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 casting reached out to Aaron and said they'd like you to come in and read for Cole, and Aaron <laughs> called us and said I think they sent me the wrong thing. I, they they said that they want me to read for Cole, and we're like, no, no, that's the right thing. And he's like, you want me to read for the lead? <laughs> and yeah. he was like surprised. He didn't think that that was right for him at all. And it's it's true that the when you read the script, like that's people get a certain actor, a certain type of person in their head. And this would make the show different by casting him. And that's what we decided we wanted to, we wanted to take a shot at that and make it a different show. But he had that sort of gritty hurt puppy thing that was exactly right. Like there's just a charm to Aaron. And so we, we got, anyway, there was a bunch of actors. We had to have an emergency casting session on a Saturday that we weren't even supposed to have with some of these agents were like, no fucking way are we sending our actor back in there? Um, and uh, it was all on the line and it was a Saturday morning. And first up was Aaron Stanford and Amanda Shule, which you can actually watch on the, the DVDs. It's that moment. And um, that was it. The second he was done, he said, thank you so much. We were all like, it's him. Let's just stop this. Let's just go. Let's try and get this approved. And, we, you know, he wasn't your traditional um, CW lead actor. You know what I mean? So we weren't sure we were going to be able to get him approved by depending on who, you know, uh, up high on the network would have expected. Um, but it all it all worked out. And it was uh, Amanda and Aaron. Oh, I remember the director of the pilot, Jeffrey Reiner, um, what he said about Aaron was that in his acting there are no false notes and that was i thought that was such a high compliment but it's also it's just true it's the kind of actor that he is and that so the idea of making the show with that level of performance and to have your hero um be essentially a character actor somebody who can create that kind of feel and vibe it would be much more interesting yeah, it's it's funny because as you are you all were describing that he's a protagonist that is so relatable, you know, as opposed to like that more kind of like Bruce Willis, like a superhero, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Which, given that 
even though Cole sort of starts out kind of in that anti-hero mode, given that this is a re- ultimately this like season-long redemption story, that relatability I think ends up you know it, it's why it's so emotional for the audience because it's more it's it's easier to picture yourself in that person's shoes right than if it's like keanu reeves type actor does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah you get he's he's just a much more versatile tool as an actor and you get to play a lot more than you you know than you think you would um and it's it just it makes for a very different story it gives you a lot more latitude so tell us about casting jones well jones jones is a tough one we saw a lot of really great um really terrific actors of of note and um all of which could have been could have been fantastic uh but there was a quality we wanted almost from the film um from the jones character from the film like this very stern doctor and as we were describing it to, he's like, because I think Jeffrey was would have been fine with almost any Jones. And when we're, I, I, I kept pushing back. I'm like, I want this. I want this. He's like, you want Barbara uh, Sukova. Sukova. Yeah. Yeah. Sukova. He's like, you Sukova. want Barbara Sukova. From- <clears throat> and we were like, I'm like, who is who that? The- <laughs> right. Talking about- and he goes, just let me, let me, let me make a phone call. And so he, he gets our casting person and then we get this this phone audition, which I think is on one of, uh, I, I think it's on one of the DVDs and it's just her. She's just skipping the other person's lines and she's doing it into her phone. And it was like that Jones. It was, it was obviously her from the, from the, like every yeah, quality the, we wanted was her. It was the German accent, the authority, the, the look, uh, it, was, it was severe, perfect. but warm. Like, uh, like there was, it was, we, that was kind of easy. And she said, yes, uh, she was living in New York at the time. I mean, we thought she was in Germany because she won all these German Academy Awards and whatnot. And so, yeah, we had her, um, which and brought she some... wasn't she, but she wasn't somebody that was out there running around doing auditions. Like not at all. No, like we, that was such a f- out of left field suggestion from Jeffrey who just dug into his, you know, <laughs> German cinema knowledge yeah, and it it just ended up being perfect. But but what it demanded, which is right, was I remember when we were writing the second episode of uh, of the series, and um, Natalie gave us a draft, uh, first draft of that, and was like, okay, what do you guys want to do? And we stepped in and took over, and I had we had shot the pilot, and. Barbara was like just one of the most intoxicating parts of that pilot. Like when she comes in and you're just like, who is this woman? And Jones had like three lines in the second episode. And then I went and I watched this, um, this movie Barbara did called Hannah Arendt, which is about, you know, the German as a philosopher or whatever, who, you know, who coined the phrase, uh, the uh, banality of evil um, uh, during the Nuremberg trials. And Barbara was amazing. It has this tour de force, monologue at the end that's like 10 minutes long that by the end you're like okay i mean this is the kind of actor we have now um and let's crank this up which is why at the end of episode two there's that big blow up between her and cole and 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 trying to formalize that relationship into something um concrete like as the cornerstone of of what the series could be um and so and that's all just because of barbara you know, she just does that 
once she starts talking, you're like, I want more of this. I think one thing that might surprise fans is if you sit down and read the 2013 <clears throat> pilot script that you all were kind enough to share with us, Jennifer Goins is not in it. That's right. Um, yeah. Can you can you talk to us all about, I mean, Terry, you've told us in the past, was it your wife's idea to turn Jeffrey Goins into Jennifer? Well, we were going to do Jeffrey Goins. In fact, when we always knew you, you couldn't do that show. Remember, Trav, we were like up in Toronto and Aaron Stanford's like, I want to play Jeffrey Goins. And we were like, it's yours. Like when we do the show, it'll be, you'll be Jeffrey Goins. And it'll be amazing. Um, we got to the process of the script and it felt like it didn't really have like an ending um, that like that promised more story. It kind of was like a written, like a conclusion. Um, yeah. Jeffrey was not going to be in the pilot. Right. And then we said, you know what? We really should, we should throw to him at the end. It's a big promise for, if you're a 12 monkeys fan for that character. And it's like, you know, you just killed this man's father. Um, oh, you start to put the puzzles, puzzle pieces together. Like maybe this is the next link of the conspiracy or whatever. Um, and then there was this thing where it was like the shadow of Brad Pitt. Like, are we ever going to get, I mean, sure. You can get somebody different, but like, it's just not that great op an opportunity. And I remember I was like, I said, I'm like, it's, it's like, I said something like my wife was sitting in the room. And I was like, I mean, you'd want to give that opportunity. I said, you want to give this opportunity to a woman. And then like, I said it, but didn't like, kind of like go all the way with it. And she's like, so why don't you do that? And then I was like, yeah, here's how you could play it out. Blah, 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 blah. So I called Trav. <coughs> I was like, Trav, how great would this be? Let's get some amazing woman to take over the thing. And, and, um, and I was like, women gross. No. <laughs> <laughs> and then we – so then we were like, all right, let's see if we can get – and what we didn't think we could do was, was convince Atlas, who owned the rights, who made the movie with Brad Pitt because it was such an important role for them making that film. And then, But no, right away they're like, you know what? That could be really cool. Um, so then it was – we have three days to find a Jennifer Goins, which is not good before shooting the pilot. But, um, you know – if you went, we went to series, we could always like find our Jennifer Goins then. And we found somebody who was really terrific uh, in the pilot to, to shoot. And, um, and then ultimately when we came to series, the pressure from the networking studio was like, let's go reexamine this role again and um, open it up to a million and one more auditions. And I saw every human being as Jennifer Goins. Oh my God. That scene, we just heard those same lines. And that's, by the way, one of the challenges of casting is you get so sick of hearing those same words. And yes. that people can come in and do a perfectly fine job, but you've just seen it so many times that you're waiting for something surprising. You're waiting, you're like literally you're hoping someone's going to come in like on a tricycle in a clown outfit and just you just do something insane so that you're you're like, "Oh, okay. I haven't thought of it this way." And but it's also it's punishment about. too. It's punishment like you're like you get to hear your own bad dialogue said poorly. You know what I mean? And you're just like, "I there's no reason we should be doing this. We should just go home and be fired." Up. Uh, exiled from Hollywood, open up a taco deli. Um, and then, so, uh, but a great, 
a great actor comes in and you're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm a little brilliant, aren't I? Listen to that. Um, <laughs> so there was a so, – so Emily Hampshire was buried in um, – it turned out she read for Kathy and it wasn't right. I don't even think I saw the audition. Um, but she also read for this. And I, I, I was just like, I think this is Jennifer. And um, and it was like, it was like a, uh, a, it had glitched out like the the uplink or whatever. You can only see some of it, but it was like the way she had this like smile and the way she said monkeys and she like, and she just you know, Emily has crazy eyes. I mean, I think she'll be the first to tell you like Emily is Jennifer Goins. There was just a thing like you knew right away that this actress could do could do scary, could do funny, could do all the, all these other things that I think that this role needed to have. And so, and that was its own battle, by the way. Then we had to bring her in from Canada, fly her in. Um, and she well, it had, was a, a yeah. battle because the people could not get out of their head the Brad Pitt dynamic, which was you took a movie star and you yeah. gave him a character role and people were like, this is going to be the role that we're going to stunt cast and we're going to get somebody that people know, and we're going to put them into a role that stretches them and reintroduces them to people. And they did not want to introduce somebody. They wanted to put somebody, they wanted to put a name quantity into that role. And it was almost a non-starter for us to even talk about somebody like Emily, who wasn't, you know, in some way famous, even in like, at least like the science fiction world or something. And they were like, no, 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 has to be. And we read every name like you haven't even heard of since like, you know, were, were they in short circuit too? Great. Perfect. Let's throw them up there. Like it was everybody. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I remember our, our, our studio executive is a very good friend of ours uh, now. I remember I was at the gym in the morning and um, I just I mean, you know, I was I was impulsive and crazy. I would have just been like, let's Emily Hampshire. I was like, Emily Hampshire, let's just go. We got her. Um, yeah. And then and the studio was like, no, we're going to take a couple weeks and we're going to do this and that. And I got an email saying they wanted to go out to they wanted to go out to somebody who I really was like someone you haven't heard of in a long time who would. I mean, you'd laugh if I said it because it's just not right for the role. Um, but but that person had a name and. Uh, that was that was I'm no, I'm no longer this this producer, but I went. I mean, and I was at the gym. I remember I called her, and uh, poor Travis this... had to be like he was like good copy. It was it cop it was Stacy? I could call it Stacy, and Stacy um, Fung, Stacy Fung, studio uh, executive, and 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 like lifelong friend forever. Uh, I just was like, are you out of your mind? What? Why are we even? This what a waste of time. And, and Trav, you know, I mean, Trav was very much like, let, you know, look, let's, it's fine. Let's go with the flow. You're, you're waking out about Jennifer Goins. Relax. I don't, I don't remember the person you're talking about at all. Oh, uh, you want me to say it? And then you can cut, well, you guys can cut it from the broadcast or bleep it. <laughs> you guys can bleep it. So fans forever want to know. It, it was. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, that's right. And I was like, what? Why would you even say she's a name? Like, and because she was a, like, I don't even know why. Now you got you to gotta bleep a lot now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bleep all that out. So, um, 
Wow. By the way, I'm sure that person's a lovely person and has, you know, gone on to do things, but they wouldn't have been right for this role. Um, anyway, it was fine. We ultimately had to do a screen test with Emily and Aaron and get everybody's atlas and everybody to sign off. And we did. Um, and that was that. Wow. So, and then let's just round out, let's round out with, um, Kirk Acevedo and Ramsey. Yeah. Kirk read it. Kirk came in and read for Cole early on. Um, and it was a fantastic audition. It was easily one of the best Coles you've, I mean, and totally would have made that show at, there was a such intensity to his performance though, that it was, it, it required the, sh- the rest of the show to be in that tone. Um, and so, which would have been, a, by the way, a really cool show. It would have been like an AMC, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, darker, fucked up. Like Oz. Like Oz. <laughs> um, and ultimately, it was, it was, you know, what, what, what do you want the show to be? And but Ramsey for us was always the most, the second important character. In the show, because we knew what his turn was going to be for the season. We knew where that character was going in the series. Um, so we knew we needed some fantastic actor to take on that role. But in the pilot, that's, I mean, there was like three lines. And, it's, and ultimately, because of runtime, that scene got cut, unfortunately. Um, but I called Kirk and I said, look, you'd be a perfect call. Let me just tell you about this other character. Would you be into it? Like I talked him through it. And he was like, yeah, I'm in. Um, and so the rest is history, but like, then we shot this pilot and he did give this great performance, which is also on the DVDs deleted scene for season one, where he comes up to Cole in the machine. He's like, look, I can get you out of this and kill everybody in this fucking room. And you do not have to go back in time. And you got to like, you know, they had great chemistry, Aaron and, and, and Kirk, like you really believed that those two grew up, grew up together in the apocalypse. Um, yeah. And then we had to cut that scene which was heartbreaking. Um, now a days, now I would have just been like, no, we have to keep that scene. We have to. And they would, they would have let us, but I mean, the pilot was 78 minutes long. So we did have yeah. to cut quite a bit. It, um, it, the original cut of the pilot is like an independent movie. It's like, it's, yeah, it's amazing. It's a kind of amazing. Two, two things about, um, think comparing the pilot that we watched versus the pilot script that you shared. Two things struck us. The first is that in the pilot script you all shared with us from 2013, it is all very much from Cole's point of view, whereas the pilot script is split much more evenly between Cassie and Cole. So one, you know, one scene that fans uh, love is sort of when Cassie's going to go meet Cole at that hotel. We see things much more from her perspective in the pilot where she's waiting at the bar, right? The bartender thinks she's kind of like, it's kind of feels sorry for her. And in the pilot, it was all from Cole's point of view. So was that um, something that you all came up with as you were filming the pilot or just sort of as you were revising the script? Yeah, that, that wasn't even a note. That was even a note. I, I mean, act one. So act one is mostly from Cassie's point of view, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, even though you have like that teaser in the beginning, that's Cole. Um, it, your introduction to the story really is through Cassie. And I think as we were doing our own revisions, we were just like, in order to maximize the change she would go through in those two years, 
why not stay with her, have her like be at that hotel, think it's not going to happen. And then just when she like is ready to walk away, he shows up. Um, yeah. Cause I remember in the original draft, like it's from Cole's point of view and like, it's the it's the same thing but from his perspective is oh shit she didn't believe me i'm gonna die and then and then uh which by the way would have worked great um and then she, at the last minute she's like come with me and then she's like you see she's this whole other person who's like prepared and has medical equipment and knew um but it meant that she be- believed and, and so you you had more opportunity to tell it from her story this way but that was just something i think we did I think it just grew like the the idea of her as a character grew too, because you know, like, like we said, like Cole and that character, we had told that story before in a in a silly novella that we wrote, and then, so later when it became Splinter and ultimately Twelve Monkeys, the character of Cassie just became more real and just sort of you know organically became more a part of the story. Yeah, it also, it's it's in that moment, the character you sitting in, you know, the decade we're sitting in can relate to, right? That this is this crazy thing that happens to her. And then what mm-hmm. would that do to your life? It was, it was interesting just to see that, um, that contrast. The other, and, and I want to make sure that we took away the right from reading the script, that I think it might surprise people. There isn't the time machine in your in this version is inside Cole's body. Are we gathering? Did we glean the right <clears throat> as opposed um, to a physical time machine? Yeah, there was. Well, yes, that he was a biological machine. Um, it's still kind of the component. It's the injections. It's the you know sure. nanos and things like that. But um, yeah, there was no like big giant apparatus in in the in the pilot but then it just felt like you're gonna want to see a giant apparatus (laughs) (laughs) like it's just too cool um Mm -hmm. and so that's where that came from was like just make it two components yeah the the also that you know then you can see it in some of the auditions there was um he was computing in his brain, like he was a biological computer. So he was working, he'd be like muttering numbers. So it was like very Rain Man-esque. Um, yeah. And, and that's then, one of the things that uh, seeing it over and over again, we grew to hate so thoroughly. Yeah. You're like, don't read the numbers. Don't fucking, oh, here, he's reading the numbers. Great. You know? <laughs> um, and it's cool. It's very cool in the read. It's very cool. Like, um, it's just like, do you want to see that every episode? Him fucking doing that. Um, Rain Manning. Yeah. It was, uh, it just wasn't, wasn't a good idea. I know it was a long time ago, but do you have any distinct memories? Like, you know, this is, this is the first time you all were, were in the process of producing something that was your vision as opposed to writing for another show. And when you were in, you know, sort of filming the pilot, watching the set design, can you talk to us sort of about, because I imagine that that was a pretty incredible experience. Any distinct memories you have, like first time you saw the time machine, things like that? Um, <clears throat> it was cold in Detroit. Uh, that's, uh, you know, December. No, this is, this, is, this is a long answer because I, I think Terry will agree to this. Um, it... It wasn't like the dream that you're promised um, because yeah. 
like he said, we were we were viewed as the the kids because we were coming off of, of you know being story editors on on Nikita, and we we did not have a long track record of producing TV and pilots and all that, and so and this is a a, a lesson for anybody that does make a pilot or or makes anything is that um as as a wise man said to us that you are going to be surrounded by people who are older and have more experience and will not have the right answers mm-hmm. and we didn't we had to fight for every little piece of our own vision on our own pilot and we had to fight to be heard we had to stand our ground more than once yeah. in very uncomfortable <clears throat> Screaming matches on set. Let's just we'll call it what it is. Yeah, and yeah. and it was and and it was like um, to compare the pilot experience to once the show was actually greenlit and we were in Toronto and actually in charge. Uh, it, it's night and day, and so it was nice to see these things and that we created and and to see them manifest. But then you'd see them and they wouldn't be quite what you wanted. And to make the adjustments was a Herculean battle that you can't even imagine. And just to say, hey, this isn't quite right. And it was almost like you'd get a pat on the head and a go sit down little 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 one. Go get your shine box. Um, right. Yeah. And, you know, and some of that actually translated into season one, too. Like if I look at season one, I can see a lot of compromises and a lot of pressure to do things, um, tell the story in a way that, um, might've been a bit more traditional than certainly the confidence we had by season two. Um, and so everybody's learning, they're learning how to make the show. They're learning how to make the show, but we we also like the kind of, I mean, I I can, I can tell you, I, I wouldn't do a lot of, of 12 monkeys over, but there are, there are big portions of season one. I would definitely revise. I think that there are things that we did wrong that there was that we just didn't know that we were doing wrong or we had caved to the pressure of it should be this kind of show. And you need to listen to the network when they'd say they don't understand the time travel and you need to have a million and one year cards and you need to um, make this, this, this. And so that was, but that's just, making television you know and i think it was and in comparison i think we've had it easier i've since then been on bigger larger shows that have a whole lot more voices and demands uh that make you go it's a miracle anything is ever good um so yeah it's hard are are there any i mean just thinking back to the way this started with trading lines back and forth which is as a writing exercise which is so great are are there moments though that like if you were when you were watching it being filmed or watching the first cut of the pilot are there moments that stick out to you all that you're like that that is what was in my head oh i mean i think uh jelko for sure giving that speech uh, about um was exactly you know, I mean, and um, and even Aaron and Amanda, and when they were they go into the party, there's a charm to them. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the the sure the the apocalypse shooting in that hospital, which was a real destroyed hospital in the beginning, like it was it all that stuff feels really great. But I think 
probably that big monologue with Jelko is because Trav and I were huge fans of Jelko. I mean, from going back from like damages, um, just having him in that part was like a dream. Um, and, and it kind of all is building to that moment where he says, I remember meeting you in 1987, but you have no idea who the fuck I am. Like you need someone fantastic to get across all those ideas. And that to he, me, he was, yeah. he was brilliant. I remember watching the, each take he did was brilliant. And yeah. I was like, let's just put them all back to back. Watch it. Put them all in. <clears throat> Travis, how about you? Uh, of any specific moment? Yeah. Um, I think it is, is Jelko's one of them, but I mean, uh, for me, when Cole kills Leland and the moment that he doesn't disappear and you see in Aaron's eyes that failure, that belief that he'd been holding getting shattered, I was like, okay, that's... That's the kind of the heart of the show, um, and it all sort of snapped into focus and was one of the last things we shot, right? Yeah, we were like ten minutes before well, we wrapped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I thought that was pretty pretty great. Yeah, you know, I went back and I read your piece that you had written in the Hollywood Reporter um, about you know the best adaptations having something new to say and that you all had something very personal to say about the nature of, you know, nature of time. And also, I mean, there's a line in the pilot with you break the past and the future follows. The show had a very different, more, you know, hopeful tone than the film um, in terms of what people can change, um, even, even if the characters are ultimately stuck in a loop. Looking back on the two of you starting out writing this story and then, you know, where it ultimately finished and now you're two years later and you all have sort of any, any thoughts about this story and just sort of what it, what it meant to you all looking back on just thinking about when you just started this out, trading lines back and forth. (laughs) I will say that the kind of fatalism of the movie is not something you want to experience for 50 hours of television. Right. And I I think when you take people on that kind of journey for that amount of time, you can't leave them with nothing matters. There's no point. Thank you. Good night. It's just, at least that's not something that I ever wanted to do. You know, Um, in a two hour story, it can be, it can be interesting. And it could be impactful, and it obviously was in the movie. Mm-hmm. But the the idea that we had was, you know, what if they what if they keep trying? And maybe there's an answer out there, and they're going to find it. And so we just wanted to pursue that. Yeah, I think it's just when when you state a series goal like um, the last survivors of humanity in Battlestar Galactica, saying we need to find a home, we need to find an Earth. Then, then that gives you a hope, right? It, it promises an ending of some kind. And I think the second you make that choice here in 12 Monkeys, which is we are going to change the future and undo this and, 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 and save the world, there's a hope to that. And, you can, and, and for me, you kind of have to do that. And you need to do it in a way that's unexpected. Um, 
so I, I just think that makes for better storytelling. It makes you want to like root for them and how are they going to pull this off? Are they not going to pull this off? You know, you want to really believe that they can't. And I think that was, you know, I, I love when a new person starts to watch 12 monkeys. You see it on Twitter all the time. They're like, they missed the point of the movie where you can't change time. I'm like, Oh, I missed that. Oh shit. I'm so sorry. I didn't know they couldn't change time in the movie. I'm like, yeah, I know. I've analyzed that movie. It, it's, do you want to make that show? Do you want to make a show where where <clears throat> the goal is finding a pure biological sample of a virus? Uh, no. Over and over yeah. and over again. Because, you know, or is it about humans? Like, do you want to be able to change humanity in a way that time itself can change? And I think that that's just a better story for television, you know? Um but yeah, I think yeah. that's where that comes from. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting though is that um, there's a lot, there's a lot of nihilism in TV um, and a lot of like misery. And the seed of what made this show different, you can you can read that pilot script. It's that hopefulness that um, you know ended up carrying throughout the whole show. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> we did something right, Trav. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys thank you guys so much this you're was, welcome this was great. appreciate y'all's time for sure well thank you guys for for still doing this next up a discussion with costume designer joyce Schur and terry metallis about designing costumes from 1491 to 2143 thank you for listening and until next time we'll see you soon